A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's The Study. Which is all about revolving bookstands and the US Declaration of Independence. Hmm. Well, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us, Histories of the Unexpected, at Unexpected Podcast. That's spelt P-D-C-S-T. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at History Hit dot com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 34 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the follower, clocks or carpets. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and, crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the chicken is in fact all about female enterprise in Ethiopia. No, it's not. I it don't believe certainly it. is. This big <laughs> AHRC-funded project on chickens in Ethiopia running at the moment. And the history of the follower is all to do with shipwrecks and mass murder. That's a good one, the follow-up. Very That's good. worth listening to. The man sitting opposite me is the detective of dynasties. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello. And the man sitting opposite me is the archivist of antiquity. I could have said anarchist mm, of antiquity. Like either, that. either. Pick, pick, pick what you prefer. Uh, together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead. This week, it's James's turn, and it's a topic that's right up his street. This is something that is very close to my heart, and we are sitting in it. It's the study. It's the study. I'm going to describe James's study to you. Okay, so it's small and messy, I would say. <laughs> Those are two words. Do you think it's messy? Yes, I do think it's, it's messy. Well, it's sort of it's sort of ordered. Yeah. Well, describe it. Um, it is as you would expect for an academic. It is full of books. There are a large number of novels here, double shelved, double shelved. I haven't got any novels in my study. I read novels like some people eat sweets. I have an enormous amount of novels, but they're not allowed anywhere in my study. Right. So huh. my study's just got history books in it. So on one side you have novels, and on the other side 
you have history books and the detritus of being a professional academic. So you've got yes. kind of folders and bits of paper. Folders uh, and stuff. Yeah. And then you've got uh, photos of your kids on the wall. You've got some bad colouring in from your kids on the wall. Very good colouring in. Sorry. Very good colouring <laughs> in. Perfect. Um, to and daddy. Uh, you've got a nice desk, actually. Yes. Um, we've done desks, haven't we? We've done desks. And you've got um, a bit, we of, haven't. bit of we technology. Did, we, we did the pen and we talked about desks with the pen. We oh, haven't okay. done the desk yet. Well, maybe we should do the desk. Yes. It's a nice little private safe space, isn't it? It is. It's a working study. Yeah. So I have two studies. I have one at work, which is full of all my history books, which is much bigger than this, full of filing cabinets. And this is really my writing study. Ah. So if you have a look at that shelf here, there are several things going on. I mean, you've said there's sort of detritus of academic work, but this shelf here, this was my letters book. So, or my many letters books. So this here are collections of letters and books on manuscripts. I've got microfilms all there. The Daybell shelf of Daybell publications. (laughs) Theses I've um, examined. And here is a book I'm working on at the moment on the family and materials of memory. And it starts here. And goes there, and then it's across here, and it's thematic. Yes. Okay, um, so, so what looks like chaos is actually... What looks like chaos is, in fact, ordered. And there, totally we've ordered. done the history of the box. Mm. Those are my memory boxes. These are boxes <laughs> of documents. Those are family memories up there. So I do something similar. If I'm working on a project, I have a bookcase near my desk where I put all of the relevant books. Yeah. Um, and everything else is sorted out according to size sometimes and Mm. and it's definitely not alphabetical but it is kind of topic oriented so if i want to go to navigation or shipwrecks i go to one corner if i want to go to the 18th century i go to another corner if i want to go to vikings i go somewhere else if i want to go to archaeology i go somewhere else it's thematic but i don't have two studies i just have one study right but you have the advantage of having two because you have your base at plymouth and you have here but you split the roles don't you? i split the roles that i mean the one at plymouth is for teaching and meeting and storing lots of stuff. I can't write in my study there. Mm. You know, it's just not conducive. But to be honest, I don't really write in a study. I write lots of other places. I mean, this this study is really for ordering. You know, this is my mind on the shelves here. And one of the things that I have to do is, in order to get into the right headspace for a project, is I have to tidy my study. Ah. I have to sort things. This shelf here, it, these are wonderful here. I got this for Christmas last year. It's a little to-do list. Oh, yeah. It actually has to-do. It, it has it. to-do, and then it has tasks and errands, and I use it now to prioritise work. So if you see here, I go through and I sort tasks to-do. These are long-term tasks, so they're things that I'm asked to do, I'm commissioned to do. So I've got, I've got several articles that I've got to write, and a grant application that I've got to put in, and I've got paperwork, and a paperclip to them, with this on the front, and a date when it's got to be done by this one, I have in fact done, so I can put that in my bin. So uh, the point you're saying is that your study is not actually for studying? No, it's for thinking and ordering. And sorting stuff out. Sorting stuff out. I suppose that if you look back at studies in history, certainly the assumption I made when I started thinking about this is that people would use their study to work in. But that's not actually the case. Mm. There are certainly some examples of people working, but I don't often work in my study. I work out and about. Yeah. And if you think about writing, the creative process is half thinking about what you're going to do. But as a historian, there are three parts. I don't know, one's thinking about it. Yep. I usually do that walking yep. or swimming. 
but often walking or somehow doing exercise. The second one is going to do the research where you go out to the archives. And then the, yep. the third one is the actual writing down of it. So certainly for me as a historian, the study really just comes into its own with the third part of that. But I've already had to mm. have done two thirds of my work before I even sit in yeah. this. And reading. If you notice, I don't have a comfy chair in here. No. So I don't read in my study. I tend to read on the bed, in an armchair, in a coffee shop. Mm. That's probably what takes most of the time. It's reading through volumes and volumes of material. But I want to start with uh, thinking about the study and we're thinking about the, the emergence of the study. When did studies come into being? And how did they come into being? And why? And what are they used for? I mean, we've talked very much about our own practice and our own form of studying. But if you think about architecturally, when studies come into being, you're looking probably late Renaissance. If you think about that architectural shift from the sort of medieval house into the sort of Renaissance house, and we're talking about elite people here. We're not talking about, you know, this isn't ordinary people. But, you know, by the late 16th, certainly into the mid 17th century, you see studies or closets or mm. cabinets emerging in aristocratic houses for men and women for the closet the closet is a his and hers you can have men's and women's closets they're very different there are some really good inventories of houses inventories would basically list all goods and items within the house room by room and it would label what the room is. And there are some really good examples that survive. There's a good example from Sir William Moore of Lowesley Hall, who is a sort of 16th century uh, administrator and politician. And we've got a record of his study, which is basically packed, or it's his closet and it's off the bedchamber. And it's connected with office. So it's stacked full of things like maps and calendars and writing materials and desks. His wife's is, we also have a record of that. And it's much more to do with contemplation and withdrawal and religion. So the books that we have contrast with the kind of classical histories that are in his study or his closet with hers that are... Religious. Well, I think there are a couple of things that are relevant there. One is it's a stage of architecture where you can actually have multiple rooms in a house. Yes. The starting yes. point is yes. that it's actually having internal walls. Yep. yep. Um, so 1400, 1500, long before that. I mean, they were yep. Yep. much larger single hall buildings. Yep. yep. And there yep. was a certain amount of privacy for sleeping, but not yep. necessarily yep. for working. But not for work. So it's a way of separating you off from the servants. And it's about, it is about privacy. Yeah. And it's about what you do in that private space. I suppose what, what distinguishes the closet from the study is the study is associated with reading and writing. And the closet is, is a place for introspection and for prayer and i suppose if we think about the monastic cell that a monk might have had you know you've got almost a sort of a study type single room of one's own extreme sort of study is the hermitage it, the hermitage so yeah, yes living in a cave and moving yourself away yeah i think this idea of the use of the study is really key and i mean you know historically you think about the kinds of thinking that go on in studies mm-hmm and I've got a wonderful example here of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's study, which you've got there, an example here. I'll need that back in a minute. <laughs> I'll get the picture up here. Right, here we are. Tell me a bit about this. Monticello was his, his main residence, and the two things that I'm interested in here is the kinds of things that he's got in it. Yeah, got a lovely grandfather you know, clock. We talked in the past about his polygraph 
which is that sort of, you know, the double yeah. writing that we talked about when we looked at the letter. But this is one of the private spaces within his house, his private rooms. So we've got his book room, the greenhouse, the bedroom, and we've got his his cabinet. Well, cabinet is another word for a study. And what's interesting here is all the things that he's got connected to writing. This is the place that he did a lot of his correspondence from. He did writing. You can think about this in terms of the Declaration of Independence. You can piece it together. What I love about it is all the instruments that he's got in it. We've got an astronomical clock case, book boxes, desk with adjustable top, uh, drawing instruments, hand magnifier, hand telescope, sculpture of John Adams, a side table, an orrery, which is where he can, see, he can see all the planets, okay. um, the polygraph, a telescope, theodolite. You know, so it, it's connected with all sorts of things. But this is the thing that I like more than anything. If anybody wanted to make me a happy, happy man, we have here a revolving bookcase. Ah. When we talked about the history of the wheel, we talked about that Renaissance reading wheel. What we have here is a revolving bookcase with little shelves that enable you to read radially. Yeah. So you can read five things at once. So That's not only does he copy in sort of duplicate, but yeah. he reads things at the same time. And if you click on the Monticello website, you go to the shop, you can buy it. Can you? £625. Yeah. And Christmas is coming. Yeah. So. <laughs> Maybe I'll buy are, are, you, are you feeling flush? <laughs> what is interesting is that behind it, you have those library steps. Ah, um, yes. I've got a set, set of those at home. I know you do, and I'm, I covered those. Yeah, they're, they're excellent. <laughs> they're, they're one of these brilliant things that they actually look like a chair. You flip the front over, and they become steps. But my study's since recently gone through a bit of an upheaval. I've been removed from inside to outside. I love your study. I'm now in the garden, and um, I don't have the height that I used to have in my previous study, which is where I needed the lower so everything's a bit lower and um i haven't i feel terrible about this but i've been traveling so much i haven't actually managed to organize my books back into the order they're supposed to have been in so although they're in my study i don't actually know what's there and it's decidedly unpleasant you need to spend time with your books i do i had to go and find a book the other day i couldn't find it i don't know where it's gone and i would have been able to walk straight to it in my previous study and the books in my previous study had been there for a decade and i I could find them blindfold yeah and now they've all been muddled up it's it's odd that you talked about the distinction between my novels and my history books these are alphabetized more or less and the history books are not the history books are thematic and i know exactly where things are yeah so I just said very briefly that I've been um, moved outside. Here we have Roald Dahl. Ah! Um, now there's a man who wrote in a shed. There is a, the man who wrote in the shed. And he was inspired by Dylan Thomas, who also oh. wrote in a shed. And there are lots of other people who have very famously written outside. Roald Dahl had a tiny shed, six foot by seven foot. And he visited Dylan Thomas's one, which had a beautiful view in Wales, and was massively inspired by it. Um, Roald Dahl's doesn't have a view, but it was a very similar size, made to the same proportions. For someone who spent his entire life writing for entertaining children, the one person who wasn't allowed in his shed were children. But he built it to give himself space from the family. So it's really interesting the way he's done it. He's got little quirky reminders of things, lots of stuff pinned to the walls. So it wouldn't inside of a shed. He's got a sort of writing desk. He wrote on his lap with a legal pad. Oh, it's on his his chair, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's on the... Arms. And he's got filing cabinets. He's got a wonderful desk, which is just full of stuff. Uh, so it's not actually for writing. So he's got this wing-backed armchair, and then he sits and writes on his lap. Chairs are interesting because they're all to do with the, the actual the purpose of what it's for. I've got one of those funny seats you kneel on, which mm. helps me kind of retain... Orthopedic. Orthopedic chair, mm. yeah, which is a relatively new invention. We should do the chair. We will do the chair. Yeah. I think that's going to be throne. exciting. 
So there we are. We've got working outside. I love being in my garden. I can't see my house from my shed. So I feel very blinkered and it gives you the focus that you need. But I also like being outside. And as I said before, it's linked with this whole business of walking for me. Um, My brain is attached to my feet. Right. Definitely. And I do most of my work walking around, I would say. Hmm. And it's a very small... I do quite a lot of it when I'm asleep. I wake up right. full of ideas. Right. And then I go probably go out and take the dog for a walk or something. And then I'm, I'm absolutely or... good to go. Right. For the final bit of the actual kind of the writing down of things. Mm. What is interesting is it's the private space. It's also with private... Roald, Roald Dahl's place. Roald Dahl's place, yeah, yeah. yeah, and my shed. Um, and it's all yeah. to do with private reading. It's the need to be private. It's the type of work you do yeah. where you can't be bothered. I mean, the opposite of it is worth thinking about. So if you think about factories or communal study, the classroom... Yeah. See, that's a very different thing. And that, the history of the classroom is absolutely fascinating. Mm. Actually, how people learn all around the world. Yeah. The history of outdoor classrooms is good. We should mm. do that as well. Or the office. I mean, I think this idea of walking is is brilliant. I found that some of the, my most creative times recently have been involved with walking. I came up with a an idea for a book with a colleague that came from a walk. I think we walked when we came up with the idea for this podcast series as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. I had a really good workshop just last week from a visiting professor at Plymouth uh, from the University of Lapland who was talking about slow lab. Right. And slow lab is basically about how you, in the sort of neoliberal university, how you get more and higher results with less, less time, less money, how you do it. And for her, she wanted to react against that. And slow lab is all about how you encourage creative thinking through walking. So it's going for a walk with somebody, how that enables your creative yeah. practice. But I want to go to Virginia Woolf. Okay. That somebody else, I mean, very similarly to Dahl's shed, she had a room at the back of the house. There. A sort of garden room. Oh, yes. Very, very simple. Yeah. With a view outside. And that was where she did a lot of her work, a lot of her writing. Very different from Roald Dahl's one, which is covered in lots of little bits of yep. little knickknacks like mine is. Yep. Um, this is bald almost. It's very Spartan. Yeah. There's nothing on the walls. Yeah. I suppose there it's about the freedom. There's a brilliant series of articles in The Guardian called Writer's Rooms, mm. which I suggest you all Google up. It's so interesting to see the different rooms in which people write. I remember reading about Nigella Lawson's library or her, her study, where she wrote all her cookbooks. And I'm a really avid cook, and I have a really impressive library of cookbooks as well, which aren't in my study. They're downstairs in the dining room. And Nigella Lawson has the most amazing cookbook library from mm. floor to ceiling in some sort of grand sort of London house. But I wanted to talk from Virginia Woolf and her own study to a room of one's own. We've talked about men's and women's studies, and... You know, I think throughout history, the study is gendered male. Yeah. And I think this was something that Virginia Woolf took on in that essay. And there's a very famous uh, quote from it at the beginning. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And the whole thing is a sort of philosophical musing on why there were no female writers. And she posits this idea of why there's no Judith Shakespeare 
I think it was a starting point for a lot of people working on women's writing. A lot of the sort of background has been fleshed in. You know, we're talking about early 19th century that this was first published. So the history of women's history wasn't sort of fleshed out and she's relying on Trevelyan and people like that. So we know a lot more about it. But the idea is that why is there no women's writing or why was there no women's writing? And a lot of it is connected to women's independence, women not having time, women being caught up with the day-to-day life of being wives and mothers and the kind of domestic world and not having a room of their own, mm. a study in which to withdraw with books. And I, th- I think I think it's not necessarily about the physical study. Mm. It's not necessarily about the physicality of it. Well, access to books, that's got to be a part of it as well, yeah. isn't it? You know, if you think about what you're doing in a study, if you are going to be studying, it's about actually being able to get access to cheap books to read. Yep. And I think that's one of the things with access to so many books online now as well, yep. and being able to buy them for a pound. Yeah. It was a real privilege, and it was a double privilege being able to go into a private room in your house to read your book, which yep. you had bought. Yep. Or um, to have a library, yeah. you know, not just a study, but a library full of your own... As a display of wealth. Of your own, I mean, it was probably more of a display of wealth rather than, you know, actually reading it. Have you heard about the dust test? No. So the dust test is about administrators in universities nowadays wanting to cut down on office use, people having their own private offices. Whereas for me, you know, part of what I do is about having my books around me. And there's something very important and creative about that and administrators who are trying to encourage hot desking and and communal office use will come round and they will put their fingers along the spine of books to test for the dust Hmm. if the book hasn't been you i mean yeah it's what a luddite sort of um you know mindset if the book has dust on it hasn't been used therefore the academic doesn't need the the office for it and can box them up. Well, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of my books, I don't read, but I probably have read. And if not, I know what's in it. And it's a kind of a sign, a reminder of the knowledge and of the time and of what you've spent. It's an inspiring thing, isn't it? Yeah. The book's more than something that's just full of knowledge for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have a wonderful anecdote about a tutor of mine at Oxford, Toby Barnard, wonderful um, Irish historian who had the most spectacular study and when I was a sort of callow undergraduate uh, at Hartford College in Oxford I loved his study but it was just lined with books and he had this big armchair in the corner and no filing cabinet the filing cabinet was the area behind his (laughs) chair and he would just you know throw whatever he was reading uh, would just all be filed in yeah. a big heap yeah. behind him. And, and the thing was, he knew exactly where it was. So undergraduate essays would go on the floor behind it. I went along to have a tutorial with him, and he had this box file, and he was busily labelling this box file. And I, thought, I asked him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm, I'm experimenting with a new filing system. Um, and so he promptly put my essay into this into this filing box. And at the end of term, you know, I asked for my essay back, to do some revision on it, and he'd lost it. Um, and um, and basically, he th- this had been his sort of two days of actually trying to file things. Yeah. And then, and then he filed it so well, he couldn't remember where it was. Offices, there are studies, they're all about filing systems. Yeah, it is. Um, I greatly enjoyed that, and sheds for me. And, and sheds. Walking, fresh air. Everyone, thank you for listening. Don't forget, you are the most important member of this podcast. Get in touch with uh, pictures of your studies. I want to see pictures yes, of your yes. studies. And let us know what you do in them as well. Yes, but to hold back a little. What, what do you keep in them? <laughs> what do you keep in them? Um, thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.
If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at thehistorymc.